You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herb Hell. Ah, Herd Tell Show, uh, January 11th. It's a Tuesday. I know you're excited about it. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Finally on the uptick, kind of getting the voice back, still a little grovelly. Just work with us. Appreciate it. Spent uh, most of the last week with uh, COVID and sickness in the house. We've tried to soldier on as best we could. Uh, we had to miss one show, unfortunately, because I just could not talk at all. Uh, but we've been trying to do our best with it, and we appreciate you sticking with us. Glad you're with us. Hope you're weekend and your Monday went well. Uh, we're going to have a lot of good stuff on the show today. We're going to talk about how we discuss culture and politics like we frequently do. Very interesting piece out of the Atlantic we're going to talk about. Uh, also going to update a couple different stories. Uh, the I-95 snowpocalypse had uh, some good moments in humanity. We're going to talk about that later. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, we talked about that with our friend Michael Siegel. Uh, it had itself a good couple of days. We're going to talk about its successful deployment as well. Cooper Conway is our guest today. We're going to talk of a little Elon Musk. Everybody loves to have an opinion on him, but we're going to take kind of an interesting direction on it. Uh, Cooper talks a lot about education and things like this. We're going to kind of spin it that way. Like, do we properly handle our eccentric uh, genius inventor types the way we used to in education? And not that Elon Musk is a super great role model necessarily, but it's interesting to see how culture and education and how we view people like him uh, as opposed to inventors of the past and captains of industry of the past. We're going to get into that with Cooper Conway. Great guy. Been on the show before. Excited to talk to him again. Um, but first, I want to start with something that, uh, frankly, has greatly troubled me. We've obviously been talking about COVID-19 a lot. The news media has dominated it the last two years because it's dominating a lot of folks' life. Uh, yesterday's program we had on Morgan Stevens uh, for basically the entire show. 
Uh, we were honored to do that. Uh, listen, I got my first uh, writing of real note, writing about myself and writing about my medical history and my issues and challenges. I know firsthand how hard it is to make yourself the subject of something that you're putting out in the public. So first of all, I just commend her courage for doing that and getting her story out. I know how hard that is. Uh, it can be cathartic. Uh, it can be therapeutic. Uh, it's also really, really hard to put yourself up for uh, examination to the world. And we commend her for that. Uh, it's one of the highest rated episodes of her tale we've done yet. And thank you all very much for watching and sharing it and listening and all those sorts of things. But while we were doing that, the rest of social media and some folks in the news media are taking a different tack. Uh, we always want to remember that every story we cover at its base is always a people story. Well, with COVID-19, we are seeing a trend, and I'm very troubled by it, and I don't like it, and we're going to address it briefly to start the program today. Uh, we're getting into this thing. Omicron has changed, as we talked with our friend Michael Siegel before on the program. It's changed how our numbers and the metrics and the statistics of COVID-19 work because it is such a contagious virus. It is rapidly spreading, but at the same time, thankfully, so far, the data looks like it's not nearly as deadly. Uh, it does not have the death toll and the hospitalization ratios with it. Now, the death toll is still way too high, and that's because people who are not vaccinated and those sorts of things, their numbers are through the roof compared to the folks that have been vaccinated. We're not here to argue all those points and rehash that again. You can find that other places. The point is in the commentary and in the discussion and on people's social media now, folks want to play this game where they take the data and either overblow it and turn it into more than it is, even although it's already tragic, or they underplay it. And now they're trying to retrograde what's going on with Omicron and apply it to the over 800,000 deaths that have already occurred over the last two years. Here's my issue, folks. How you treat human life in your commentary, in your social media, in your everyday conversations, how you treat human life tells me a lot more about you than what your political or ideology leanings that you're professing tell me. Human life is precious. You only get one of them. And I don't know, some of you may not realize this yet, but every single one of us is going to die. We all have an expiration date. Uh, this is just how this is. It's what makes life and the human existence unique. We get one of them and we're going to die. And we don't have a whole lot of control over it. Um, folks seem to be losing their humanity in the way they're dealing with COVID-19 now that it's going this route with Omicron. They want to use the numbers as political cudgels. They want to do some, I see, I told you so with some of the latest numbers. Um, our elected officials and our non-elected officials, folks that are appointed places that like the CDC and stuff, have not been doing themselves any favor with their messaging and how they discuss things. We need to hold them accountable, but at the same time, just because an official messes up and says something wrong doesn't mean all your worst fears about how the COVID-19 virus has gone in the last few years may be true. We have to be so careful and we have to maintain our bearing with things like COVID-19. Science is always evolving. It's always changing. There was a lot that we just didn't know in the beginning, and too many people were proclaiming that they did know when they didn't know. 
We've said over and over again on this program, one of the biggest problems with the COVID-19 crisis was a lack of humility. Uh, government officials, experts, scientists, commentators, and us, the general public, could have all done with a big heaping helping of, I don't know, instead of making pronouncements, because now they felt like they had to either uphold those pronouncements or defend those pronouncements or make things work to keep those pronouncements to come true so that they didn't look silly. Then people started putting their politics on it. People started putting their cultural ideas on it. People started putting their personal feelings involved in it. And we had ourselves a red hot American mess on top of a disaster of hundreds of thousands of people dead, many more sick. Uh, we talked on the program yesterday with Morgan about the long COVID sufferers, otherwise perfectly healthy folks that are now having major problems that we don't fully understand and probably won't for years to come until there's proper scientific and medical study done about it. It didn't kill anybody and nobody would have used, lost any social media points to have just had a little bit more humility to this thing. We're losing our humanity on these subjects because we're so busy trying to slam the square peg of whatever's going on next into the round hole of whatever was going on already in our social media feeds, in our commentary feeds, on our Facebook feeds, in our Twitter timelines. We're just so desperate to keep the conversation going the way we want it to go so that we can prove we're right, that we use every single thing that comes along as part of the fodder for it. That's not healthy, folks. It's not good. It's not good for you, your family, your community, or for the country. Now, here's how this really gets nefarious in a hurry. I understand perfectly that things like the government and people that have Danes on power can use emergencies to try to maintain that power, expand that power. We've been very vocal about that. Uh, these states of emergencies without proper recourse. Uh, people having, quote unquote, emergency powers. Shouldn't they have some standards as to how they do that? Those are all fine things. Those are things we've advocated for. But the reverse is true. You can't just say that something isn't a crisis when it is to suit your own very fancy. You can't just magically wave away bad things because it doesn't fit into your models of how you see the world. Again, a little humility evenly applied all around, would have done everybody a world of good, might have even saved some lives. I want COVID to go away, but it wasn't. I don't want to have had COVID and been sick myself. I didn't like watching members of my household being sick with COVID. I hated having to sit and hear Morgan Stevens' story, which is representative of millions of other people who have these long-haul COVID symptoms that we don't even fully understand yet. I didn't like having family members die that knowing that they died alone because they couldn't have visitors in the hospital they were in. I didn't like having limited funerals for those family members because of COVID restrictions. There's millions and millions of stories over the last two years of important life events, births, weddings, deaths, funerals interrupted because of COVID. And then there's that horrific death toll of over 800,000 and counting of people who have died of this illness or connected to this illness. We can argue about the numbers, but keep all that in perspective first. These are still neighbors. These are still friends. These are still fellow countrymen. Don't let them be stats. When we make people stats and numbers, we've lost our humanity. And then what's the point of it all? We can and should do better, folks. If they're not people anymore, if they're just numbers, you've already gone to a very dark place that's going to be really hard for you to get out of. 
And there's no vaccine for that. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Let's uh, talk about something we talk about on this program frequently. You know, we talk about turning down the noise of the news cycle. And one of the noisiest things in the news cycle is uh, kind of become its own little thing. We call it Twitter ain't real life. And what we mean by that is things that are trending on social media or things that are getting really, really loud among the chattering classes. And I'm including myself in that. Uh, doesn't mean they're actually real, as in the mass of people in the world are talking about them. We know from the data that things like, and I'll just use Twitter as an example because that's the medium I spend a lot of time working in and through and of, uh, it's not real life. We know that there's a very small percentage of actual Americans and world citizens that's on Twitter. And then inside of that very small percentage, we know that almost 92% of all the tweets online that are shared or spread or talked about come from only about 10% of the users. It's a lot of people just saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, so Twitter definitely ain't real life, but there is some truth in there. Uh, part of what we talk about with Twitter ain't real life, we're talking about news media ain't real life, especially broadcast network news media ain't real life, is that it always has to focus on certain things as part of their business model. And I'm not even knocking them for that. That's just the way it is. Uh, bad news sells, as the old joke goes. Uh, certain topics trend faster. They get more clicks. They keep people engaged. So they keep getting covered over and over and over again. That's just the way the world works. Uh, you can decry it, but it's better to just understand that that's going on and move on. There's a fascinating piece from The Atlantic back a few days ago. And again, we're working a little behind here because I spent a week dealing with COVID and six, sick. But Victoria Parker, writing in The Atlantic, had a very interesting piece. And this came to our attention through our uh, Asger uh, tweeted it. And Nicholas Grossman, in front of the program, has been on the program before, was also tweeting about this, brought it to our attention. So that got me thinking. And I actually pulled up the article. And I think there's some interesting things in here about how what we think is true based on the news of the noise cycle or based on Twitter ain't real life or any of these other means we talk about, there's some things in here we need to discuss. Uh, reading from this Atlantic piece, uh, left-leaning readers might not be surprised that conservatives would accept as widespread a caricature of a radical liberal agenda, given that they are so clearly blinded by racism or pro-choice, pro-police sentiment that they would excuse even the most unjust excessive force. But wait, is this portrayal of conservatives accurate. No, it isn't. Just as liberals came to rally around Black Lives Matters, conservatives gravitated to Blue Lives Matter. From the vocal conservatives who made excuses for misconduct or blamed victims, some liberal commentators concluded that the right is dominated by police apologists. In fact, many on the right recognized both the humanity and hardship of police officers and those harmed by them. When we asked conservatives if police were almost always justified in the shooting of black people, only 31% of respondents even somewhat agreed with that sentiment. Liberals, on the other hand, estimated nearly double that number, 57%, gave police a free pass. It doesn't match. Now, there's some caveats here. Our research, which is available as a preprint, is under review and subject to change. This is from the Atlantic piece, mind you. We drew our large samples of respondents from online survey platforms, not from nationally representative pollings. We recognize this as a sample, and therefore our estimates of the prevalence of liberal and conservative opinions is not an exact microcosm of the country. Still, other researchers have concluded that these platforms are reasonably 
comparable to national representative polling. The gap that we identified between what partisans really think and what their opponents think they think shows up again and again, but only on a particular kind of issue. People have more accurate views of the other side's position on many standard policy issues, such as taxes or health care, but specifically on culture war issues. Partisans are likely to believe a caricatured version of the opposing side's attitudes. These misperceptions have hardened into enduring stereotypes, liberal snowflakes and free speech police, conservative, racist, and deplorables. In reality, just a third of liberal participants agreed even a little with banning controversial public speakers from college campuses, but conservatives estimated that 63% of liberals held that view. Only 22% of conservatives expressed hostile and unwelcoming attitudes towards immigrants, but liberals thought that 57% of them had done so. Our data suggests that many people are walking around with an exaggerated mental representation of what other Americans stand for. Where do these ideas come from? Again, reading from The Atlantic. Partisan media outlets have an incentive to stoke their audience's outrage by making extreme views seem commonplace. In our work, we saw that the more people reported consuming partisan news, a category which, drawing on the work of other researchers, we included things such as Fox News and MSNBC. That's parenthetical. The more they believed in a characterized version of the other side. People's perceptions of others are powerful, even when they're wrong. We found that people dislike their opponent primarily for the fringe views most opponents don't actually hold. Worse still, partisans who dislike their opponents most were least willing to engage with them, which likely forecloses the chance to have their misconceptions corrected through real-life personal contact. Instead, an oversimplified, exaggerated version of the other side's view is allowed to live on inside of everyone's head. What's more, partisans told us they were hesitant to voice their opinions about the most extreme positions expressed by people on the same side of the spectrum. For example, liberals were less keen to talk policy publicly about the downsides of censoring free speech that they were to talk about the benefits of universal health care. So although a majority of liberals opposed censorship, their reluctance to criticize it openly might have led to conservatives think the most on the left favorite. So what should politically minded Americans conclude from our research? This is from the Atlantic again, that gosh, their opponents are just like them and everyone should join hands in the center. Nope. Some policies and some partisans deserve forceful opposition, even contempt from the other side. Vigorous disagreements both within and between parties is essential in a functioning democracy. But democracy also requires at least a level of mutual comprehension. No matter where people are, on the political spectrum, they ought to know whom they're fighting with and what they're even fighting about. That's Victoria Parker from The Atlantic back a few weeks ago. Um, this gets to the heart of what we actually try to do on this program on her tell. We don't want to just react. We don't want to just pay attention to the noise. It's important to get beyond the outrage and the noise because if you're reacting, you're not actually doing anything. You're letting the other side or the other person or what you're consuming dictate to you how you act. You need to stay ahead of the news. You need to understand the news, and you start by turning down the noise. Turning down the noise often means not just buying into a caricature. 
One thing that nationalized news media does, and we've been talking been talking about this at length with the with the decline of local media, everything has to fit into a national narrative, and that doesn't work in a giant pluralistic, three hundred thirty million strong, super diverse country like America. You end up getting out a really broad brush constantly for everybody because you have to try to fit it into a national narrative. You got to fit it into three and five minute segments. You got to fit it into one or two tweets or an Instagram story or a Facebook post. It just doesn't work. There's too many people. They're too varied. They have too many opinions and many people just because they are of one party or the other, or one ideology or the other, they're still not monoliths. They may have places where they have disagreements with their own sides and their own parties on certain specific issues. Broadbrushing everything in the national media has caused a lot of this problem. So we feed into narratives of one side versus the other because it simplifies it, it makes it easier to understand, makes it easier to consume, and it makes it easier to keep people upset because once it's our side versus their side, the actual points of it don't matter so much as just making sure you win. That's okay, I guess, but maybe you should make sure that you know what you're actually fighting about. What some of this research has shown, and Pew's had similar data over the years, and we see it again and again and again on topics, if you just turn down the noise and get below the surface a little bit, is folks are fighting about something that they may not even need to fight about at all if they would just calm down a little bit and actually hear what the other side is saying. Sometimes it's just a nomenclature problem. For example, if we take something like criminal justice reform, if we say, well, we want to have you know, bail reform. Well, one side just immediately starts thinking everybody wants to just turn criminals loose on the streets. Well, that's not necessarily true. But if you came at it with a certain nomenclature that a conservative minded person was, hey, the bail system is part of government overreach and we want to have effective and limited and accountable government and bail reform is an extension of having accountable government. Now you got an inroad with them and it makes sense to them in their worldview. And you're not just painting a broad brush. You're actually getting to something they can agree on. I've often said, and people kind of recoil at this, but the env- our environmentalist friends who want to take care of the environment have natural allies and hunters. If they would just quit calling them dumb rednecks with guns and understand that those are people who have a vested interest in conservation and stewardship of nature. You just have to turn down your prior a little bit, get past it and not broad brush people. There's things like this that we could find a lot of common ground on if we just work on it a little bit. But it all starts every time with making sure we're operating off correct information and not just reacting all the time. If you're just reacting, you're missing out. If you're just reacting, you're being controlled. There's an old saying, don't make an enemy by accident. We're making lots of enemies online in our social and cultural and political commentary just to please the crowds. That's even dumber. We should really stop doing that. More Herd Tell right after this. All right, thrilled to have Cooper Conway with us, another Young Voices contributor, friend of ours, Boise State student, uh, bon vivant of the world, Red Sox fan. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you with us, uh, suffering through a whole bunch of things between my bad voice and my family issues in the home, making lots of noise that we won't get into. Uh, you've been writing about somebody who's highly controversial, though. I have very strong opinions about this guy. I have very mixed opinions about this guy. But let me just open the floor to you this way, and you do it. Elon Musk, 
uh rich man innovator some people love him a lot of people don't what's your thoughts on him yeah i gotta admit he's all of the above he's a mixed bag um i think i don't i want to say i'm an elon musk fanboy but i will say that i appreciate what he's doing uh for my generation and for future generations and what he's trying to accomplish so in that case i'll i'll give him a gold star um, some of his tweets I can disagree with and how he carries himself in public life, but that's really up to him personally. So I'd say I'm a fan. I'd say I support him. Here's my thing. I've, I've broke this down before. I'll, I'll bring it to you this way. I love the SpaceX stuff. I'm highly skeptical of the Tesla stuff, which we can, that's a whole nother thing for its own day. I really can't stand how he publicly carries himself with certain things. Uh, let's talk about the cave rescue and that sort of thing. But I also think there's a place in society for the crazy eccentric genius type person. Society needs those kind of colorful characters in a lot of ways. Am I wrong to kind of balance it out that way? Or is that kind of how you see him as well? I I see in in a similar way. I think how he carries himself is, um, is up to interpretation depending on very much the values that, that you hold dear um, for myself, there's definitely times where I, I'm not a huge fan, but also some of his outside think outside of the box thinking, I think is special. And it's, it's obviously unique to him. He's a unique person, um, and how he carries himself and, and what he, uh, what his dreams are. And I think we are lacking right now, a, a place where we can support people that dream and think out outside of the box. And I think he does that. Um, and so I think that's a good thing. Is it just the billionaire thing? Uh, you were writing about it in this piece uh, that was published at the American Spectator about Elon Musk. Is it the billionaire thing because billionaire has become such a term and buzzword that just anything that's a billionaire is obviously bad? So even though, and again, I've got plenty of problems with how he conducts himself personally and some other issues as well. I don't think this just blanket hatred for everything that's a billionaire is particularly healthy. And that's something you touched on that you think some of the Musk stuff is as well. Yeah, I definitely think that's a, that's a serious problem. Um, I particularly think that you're right. We just throw this, this person has this much amount of money in their bank account and they must be bad. And I, I, I particularly don't understand it when it comes to Musk, because I think Musk is the one billionaire that my generation in particular should like the most. He's the one that's trying to fight climate change and he's, go- he's going to space. He's trying to get us on Mars. And I, I get worried when um, he gets named the Time Magazine's 2021 person of the year and people my age are, are supporting these senators that are going after him for not paying his fair share of taxes, whatever that may be in your mind, or um, just think that he's an overall bad guy when I'm seeing his accomplishments over the past year as, uh, as exciting. And I, I, I personally love space. I love the idea of one day us being able to go to Mars and, uh, you know, do commercial space travel. And I think we're thinking very much short term and that he's taking joy rides um, and not helping the people out on earth. When I think these joy rides are going to transform into something much bigger uh, decades down the line. Yeah. See, that's something that our friend, Michael uh, Siegel keeps talking about pushing back on the billionaires in space thing is he's like, Hey, wait a minute. He's like, you need that because this is how you gateway this stuff. Uh, And you talked about that in your piece that, yeah, you can just bash it, but if you don't have people opening gateways to things like this, yes, they could maybe use it for selfish ends in the end, but somebody's got to do that. And in the current situation we have in the current environment we have, this is the way this is going to get done. Completely. Um, NASA recently released a, a kind of a report and said that these commercial uh, launch services, they're, they're called such as, such as 
uh, Elon SpaceX has lowered the cost of um, reaching low Earth orbit by a factor of 20. Um, and that, that's a that's a great innovation that he has provided and that others like uh, Jeff Bezos um, have really been making serious step towards helping us get into space and, and to be able to take advantage of whatever it's space. We don't really know a whole bunch about it, but whatever advantages we can uh, we can take from it, we should. Yeah. Talking to Cooper Conway about Elon Musk. Why do you think this is a generation thing? You nailed your piece towards Gen Z. Uh, that's not my generation. I'm either the, uh, I don't know, the oldest X or the youngest millennial, depending on which metric you want to use there. Why do you point this towards Generation Z as something that's a generational shift of how people view things like Elon Musk? I think Elon Musk in particular is because going back to the billionaire point is that my generation seems to hold these views of capitalism as uh, as an evil. Uh, now it's about 50, 50 percent on whether um, someone from my uh, from my generation is going to say capitalism is a good or a bad thing. And this this goes for even um, young Republicans, the party that that's supposedly uh, sp- supposed to promote free free markets has gone down from um to only about 56, uh, 66% of Republicans and uh, GOP leaners my age think that capitalism is a good thing. And um, and I, I think that we're seeing is a problem as, well, he's wealthy and I'm not. And so we're, we're coveting, you know, uh, to, take, to make it biblical, not necessarily a good thing. And so he's being, um, he's being attacked for that instead of saying, well, some of his innovations that has made him all of this money is going to end up... Uh, trickling down if you put that in quotation marks to my generation in terms of innovation talking to cooper conway the thing about it is is this is beyond just the traditional left-right spectrum you talk about this in the piece too is you know not to get into too much horseshoe theory here but this enviousness of wealth this covetousness if you want to use that biblical term again like you alluded to they're both sides tend to go that way once you start talking ideology wise and especially on society thing and economic things that's just kind of a part of human nature here. And it doesn't really fit neatly into our ideological spectrum. And then you have somebody like an Elon Musk show up. It makes it even messier, doesn't it? It, it really does. Uh, my former boss at uh, AEI, James Pathakoukas, described Elon Musk's politics as a politics of progress and something that isn't really shown on either side of the aisle in terms of uh, more Republicans are starting not to be uh, super comfortable with free trade. Obviously, uh, Bernie Sanders wanting to kind of redistribute wealth um, across the board here and having someone like Elon Musk that um, really thinks of technology as a way to help solve some of our problems and embracing that instead of trying to push away from the idea of innovation and growth um, really stands out from the pack. Talking to Cooper Conway about Elon Musk and technology. Let's take it this direction for just a second. Um, We're talking generation gaps. Not to go old guy yelling at clouds for a second, but the fact that Musk is kind of immature in his social media presence, he is abrasive, he does act childish a lot of the times, that's something that turns a lot of people off, turns me off. Uh, Is that generational too, or is that something that maybe the younger generation or Gen Z, maybe it's just something where they just view it differently? Oh, that's a good question. I think that really depends on uh, if you're... There's definitely people my age who I can think of in my friend group that are uh, Elon Musk fanboys. Uh, they love everything he does, whether that's calling Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Karen, and uh, kind of making an attack on her on Twitter, um, or just kind of like we're alluding to some more immature comments. Um, 
but also that does turn off a lot of people in my generation. So it kind of just is split down the middle in terms of if you like the guy and his personality at all. Um, I personally have my issues as well. Um, but I think I just need to look past that and look at the idea that Tesla alone in, in 2020 um, helped the world avoid 5 million metric tons of CO2 emissions. That's an accomplishment that despite his bad tweets that I may not agree with, I think is something that's more important. Yeah, we're talking to Cooper Conway, uh, another of the great Young Voices contributors we get to work with. Uh, we're going to take a quick break on Hertel when we come back. Going to dig a little bit more into Elon Musk, going to talk a little education with him as well. Kind of talk about since he's into a space, uh, maybe we're not using education to stare at the stars quite as much as we used to be. We'll get into that with Cooper Conway right after this. And we're back with Cooper Conway, another Young Voices contributor, Boise State. Uh, that's the blue field for those of you that sports ball. Uh, Cooper, how are you, my friend? I'm doing fantastic. Hope we're. Um, uh, Boise State is able to get into a bowl game next year, but uh, we'll see. Didn't they do a bowl on that field one time and like all the birds killed themselves because they, they were repainting the lines and there was no white and all the birds started like, you know, dive bombing straight into the field because they thought it was water or something crazy. Am I remembering that correct? That is exactly correct. We don't always like to talk about that as our field killing birds, but yes, that did happen. Uh, well, on to other matters. Uh, one thing we were talking about, Elon Musk, you're you're kind of bailiwick on commentating. We've had you on the show before talking about educational issues. Um, I wonder sometimes we used to really praise uh, inventors, even excedrin, that's a headache thing, uh, eccentric ones and crazy ones and ones that aren't maybe socially acceptable. But we used to praise them as part of our education system of like, hey, you should aspire to be an Edison or an inventor or a Washington Carver or any of these guys. We don't do that with Musk. Obviously, he turns a lot of people off. He turns me off. I'm upfront about that. But are we losing a link between education and practical um, inspiration of people by not putting up people that innovate like this as something to be celebrated? Yeah, I think it's a real problem of what are we valuing? And it seems that creativity uh, is not one of those things that we are valuing in our K-12 education system. And I think not many people know this, but Elon Musk actually opened up um, his own private school for uh, some of his children and then also some of his employees at SpaceX, I believe, called Ad Astra, that specifically kind of targets this and goes from away from the traditional education model, um, the pep rallies, the sports, and really does it more towards you know chemistry labs. And who knows, maybe he has uh, some of the kids play around with some of those flamethrowers just to try something new and think outside of the box. Uh, just for the record, we are not advocating children play with flamethrowers. Um, just to put that out there, uh, what should we be focusing on K through twelve? Because I I've been contending a lot of people other do. Uh, you know, crisis reveals things. I think COVID has revealed a lot of issues with the K through twelve system, and I don't think they're COVID related. I think they've been revealed by COVID. We were two years into this. We've we've gotten most of the schools back open. Obviously, Omicron is kind of threatening that now. Have we learned anything or is it just plow ahead as it was before? Because we had a lot of parent outrage. We had a lot of teacher outrage. We had a lot of administrative outrage, but I don't really see anything being different even after all that. Do you? Yes, I think I see a lot of people who are, are pointing to the past two years and saying our K through 12 system has totally collapsed and has, and has failed our students. And I see it as it's been failing our students. This is not anything new. Um, students need more opportunities and more choice to attend a school 
that necessarily works best for them. I'm not saying that all public schools um, are failing every single child that they serve, but I'm saying that not every child is going to be served by a traditional one-size-fits-all model. And I think when it comes to curriculum, a lot of parents are looking for more transparency in terms of what their child is being taught. And over the past, I would say, year or so, particularly, uh, the it's kind of been peeled back and parents are starting to see, oh, this is what my child is being taught and they're not necessarily liking it. Um, and so they're trying to get something different out of the, the school system and the schools aren't exactly budging. This is something not to bring it back to Musk again, but people are complaining like, well, why don't they spend this money on on planet Earth? Why are they spending all this money on it? Well, education is one of those things we can point to and go, we're spending all the money, you know, that God has on this stuff and it's not making it any better but we don't ever seem to put those two arguments together and go like, well, wait a minute, there's a, there's a lesson to learn here, but everybody's just talking past it. Do you see that though? That like, this is incongruent that we're talking about, we'll spend more money. Well, education is one of those things where spending money alone isn't getting it done. So that argument doesn't really wash with me. Where does it with you? Uh, I completely agree. My friend uh, and fellow young voices contributor, Gary Franklin, and I uh, wrote an article recently on uh, Baltimore city's uh, public education system. And we actually pointed towards Musk and everyone was saying we need to tax him more. And I was saying you could throw every single penny of Elon Musk dollars into the Baltimore city education system. And I would be willing to bet that there, there's no increase in terms of uh, student achievement. And I think that's because the system itself is broken. The dollars aren't actually reaching the students and the students aren't seeing that in their lives. The dollars are instead spent on um, administrative staff or just other terms of funding that isn't necessarily helpful for students being able to achieve. Yeah. And one thing I found interesting doing some media stuff is things like school choice really don't cut along the normal ideological lines. I know um, down in down in our way a little bit, you have some really super progressive people on things like the environment, but they got interested in school choice because of COVID. Um, you have some people that are really against school choice, but they're very, very conservative in a lot of their other ways. This is one of those issues when it comes to education, you start talking to people's kids. I think we try to put ideological and political labels on this stuff, but when you start talking people's kids, I don't think it fits into that conversation nice and neatly. Is that something we haven't done a real good job talking here is we, we just need to understand that when we're talking education, this is a whole different conversation that we maybe need to change our terminology and buzzwords on just a little bit. Uh, I think that's fair, but I also would like to point out, I mean, school choice is wildly, like you were saying, it is wildly popular across the board. Um, there definitely are some people on the on the right, you could say, that aren't exactly huge fans and and some of those on the left that are more progressive. But generally, we're seeing um, I know education savings accounts, for example, among parents have 84 uh, percent support, which is just wildly high levels. And it is something that in terms of um, progressives particularly like it because you're saying, OK, we're going to give uh, usually lower income families dollars directly so that they can serve and they, they can attend these these private schools that have been um, in many in many ways been consistent uh, consistently outperforming some of these more local government schools that uh, these children have been zoned to and um, vice versa you're definitely getting some types of uh, protectionism from wealthier families who don't want don't want their schools to, to potentially get hurt by these you know lower income families they, they just like them the way they are they don't want to like they don't want to change them at all. But really, I think school choice is something where we should be providing opportunities for every single children, every single child, no matter the background. Yep. And to loop this back to Elon Musk, we talk about him being this kind of renegade eccentric genius. He went to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, alma mater of our former President Trump, by the way. Take that for what that's worth. Uh, that is an Ivy League school. 
I really wonder one thing I wonder about our education system though, is when we get somebody who is an outside of the box thinker like this, I don't know that the funnel system of K through 12 education, which is so dependent on get everybody possible into the college and uh, higher education system as quickly as possible. I really wonder we're leaving kids behind that need a different path. And I think we're seeing some things like, you know, they're starting to teach coding. They're starting to teach, you know, online skills. There's, there's been a cry for jobs programs to come back into schools, hybrid learning where a lot of kids can go to high school and go to community college at the same time. Do you see that trend continuing? Because I wonder with people like Musk, shouldn't we use that model and be like, Hey, we need more people like this. So we better have a wider brush with our education system to give them opportunities to grow and come out of this system. Yeah, I completely agree. The more diversity that we can bring into the education sphere so that every child has a chance to to develop their skills is important. But I also fear we're already seeing in New York, for example, uh, advanced or accelerated learning programs that would serve children uh, like an Elon Musk, who's just naturally and talentedly uh, talented and gifted. Um, they aren't getting the chances to go take those those higher level math classes uh, because parents are nervous about equity and, and saying, well, you know, certain kids are getting ahead of my child and that's not fair. And so they have to instead of trying to improve their child, um, higher, higher gifted, gifted children are basically being brought down to a certain level and we're not letting we're not developing their gifts. Yeah, I, I think with when it comes to education, if you're one of those people like us that want to advocate for freedom and liberty, I think it needs to be more all of the above than, you know, pick one or two and like a lot of things in life. Uh, Cooper Conway, great talk on this sort of thing. Let folks know where you're at, where they can find you on social media and what you got coming up, my friend. Once you get done with your uh, little break you're taking there. Yeah, you can follow me uh, at Cooper Conway one on Twitter, and then you can see my my face on the uh, the Young Voices profile page on uh, on the web. Yep. He's a C. I'm an A. He's the line right below mine on the Young Voices page. Uh, Cooper Conway, we'll keep having you back as education is probably going to be a big issue. Election year, so we're going to be talking education, no doubt. Uh, you do well, my friend. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Hope you feel better. Thank you. I heard tell. Welcome back. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, we like to update stories as we go. You know, we have our friend Michael Siegel on this program frequently. He's a scientist, an astrophysicist, an astronomer, does all kinds of this fancy space stuff, uh, along with talking about other topics of the day when he's on the program. But he was on the program recently, talked about the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, well, we have an updated story. Um, from the Washington Post, NASA's revolutionary James Webb Space Telescope has transformed itself into what looks like a giant kite, successfully deploying a tennis court-sized sun shield designed to keep it operating at extremely cold temperatures. This was the most nerve-wracking phrase of the $10 billion mission so far, one flagged repeatedly by officials who had reviewed plans for the telescope and wondered if such a novel design could reliably work. The telescope launched Christmas morning from French Guiana atop an Airy 5 rocket. The telescope, including the sun shield and all other hardware, was folded up inside the cone of the rocket. It has since had to unfurl itself while hurtling through space. Engineers tested the sun shield on the ground but could not duplicate the conditions in space. The effort to unfurl and then tighten the five-layer, 70-foot-wide sun shield, which NASA describes as providing protection against solar radiation equivalent to SPF 1 million, Lord, 
took several days with commands sent from operation centers at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. The deployment concluded midday Tuesday with tensioning of the fifth and final layer, a process involving mechanical release devices that account for more than half of the 344 potential single point failures on this complex mission. It's a unique design, never tried before, never been built before, never been successfully deployed in orbit. John Durning, the deputy project manager for the web mission, told the Washington Post on Tuesday, the mission has had a couple of hiccups. At one point, NASA project managers put deployment on pause to analyze readings from the solar array. That they were somewhat different from what they had expected and made technical adjustments. During said it is important to avoid overtaxing the team, which is working 12-hour shifts that sometimes have to be extended. All the major deployments to date, including the solar arrays needed to power the observer array, have gone splendidly. I am thrilled. I have been on the job 15 years to see it unfurl in space. It is awe-inspiring. He said in a text of a postscript, 15 years of anticipation of this moment, and it did not disappoint. So updating our story from our friend Michael Siegel, we'll ask him again when he's on next time. It was very interesting. Michael talked about how they actually developed this technology for unfolding this array. NASA literally took a room, got some engineers. They took a plain old bed sheet, went in the room, and they just folded it over and over and over again and analyzed it and studied it and did all kinds of mathematical calculations based on how they folded and unfolded it, trying to find the most efficient way to unfold something. Some very old-school tech for the highest of high-tech that we now have out in space, looking deep into the cosmos, trying to tell us more about our universe And as Michael explained it, this is almost like looking backwards in time, the way it's looking into how the universe was made and created and the energies involved. Amazing piece of science. And those engineers started out with a bed sheet, trying to figure out how to fold it, just like you did with your mom, or if some of us that were in the military trying to get those perfect hospital corners back in basic training. Interesting how things work out. Nice little piece of science and tech news. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell Show. You know, we always try to end uh, our program on a happier note or a lighter note, especially when we're covering such heavy topics. Uh, another story following up on, remember, we talked about the I-95 snowpocalypse and the 24 hours or longer some folks had to get stuck on I-95 up in the Virginia area. Uh, there was some good news in that reading from NBC4 out of Washington, D.C., it had already it had almost been 21 hours. A Maryland couple was among the many people stranded overnight on Interstate 95 in Virginia, tired, cold, and hungry. When 23-year-old Casey Node noticed a bread truck among the stopped vehicles, she decided to reach out to the company, Schmidt Baking Company, to see if the food inside could be shared. Within 20 minutes, she said the CEO himself called her, told her to hand her phone to the truck driver, and told the driver to release the bread to anyone who needed it. It was one of the kindest moments I'd ever witnessed. No wrote on a Facebook post that had since gone viral. In an interview with NBC News, No said that he and her, her and her husband, John No, 24, have been traveling from Ellicott City, Maryland, to North Carolina to visit family. Her husband is a senior airman in the Air Force, and the couple wanted to see their family before moving to Germany next week. The Noes ended up stuck at mile marker 148, which was 10 to 15 miles from the crash that involved six tractor trailers. Quote, after almost 21 hours of being stuck on I-95, 
sleeping here overnight, not having access to food or water, and all the nearest towns being out of power. We were tired, frustrated, and hungry, Casey No recounted on Facebook. Many of the people stuck out here had small children, were elderly, had pets in their cars, and hadn't eaten in almost a whole day. Casey and John No flagged down the bread truck driver, Ron Hill. His truck was stranded with them, but he, he was stocked with loaves of bread. Hill works for the Schmidt Baking Company, and Casey reached out to the CEO. She says the CEO then called her directly, told her to hand the phone over to Hill and release the bread, which they passed out to nearly 50 different cars. A little bit of friends taking care of friends and people making neighbors of whoever's around them. Touching story in a tough, difficult situation. Good on them. Good on the Schmidt Baking Company. That'll do it for her tell today. Thank you so much. Uh, the response on the last couple of shows have been tremendous. We really appreciate it. If you leave a comment on any of the various platforms that you watch the show on, whether it's YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, wherever, we will try to reply to you, get you an answer. We love interacting with you. You want to talk to us directly uh, at her tell show at the Twitter or hurtell show at gmail.com and send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, keep your bearing, be nice. Might even put it on the show and talk back to you a little bit. Uh, in the meantime, wherever you and yours are, we sure appreciate you listening. We hope you, we hope we find you and yours. Well, we hope you're well fed. Till we talk to you tomorrow. That's it for Hurtell. Y'all take care. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.